I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, sandwiched between the prophets Obadiah and Micah. If you find those, you're close. We began uh, our study of the book of Jonah last week, considering the first three verses, and today I'd like to uh, pick up uh, or look at verse uh, 4 through 16. Just for context, I'll begin reading in verse 1. And so, Jonah... Uh, Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, "'What do you mean, you sleeper?' Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where did you come from? Where, what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on, on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah And hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, last week we saw how the Lord commissioned Jonah as his prophet to deliver a message of impending destruction upon the Assyrian city of Nineveh. 
But since the Assyrians were ruthless oppressors of the Israelites, Jonah had no desire to give them a warning since that would have given them a chance to repent. And knowing what he knew about the nature of God, that he was gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, he knew that his mission could very well result in Nineveh not being destroyed. And so rather than arising and going to Nineveh as the Lord commanded, we read that he arose and fled in the opposite direction, going down to the port city of Joppa and getting on a ship to Tarshish, about as far away as you could get from the city of Nineveh. But as Jonah sailed away, he had to know that his attempt to flee from the presence of the omnipresent Lord was completely futile. As Psalm 139 says, where shall I flee from your spirit? Well, Jonah will soon find out he can't flee. And so we see in verse 4, the Lord's immediate response to his stubborn and wayward prophet as we read that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. In the Hebrew, the first word there is the Lord, showing that it's God who is now the main actor. And although Jonah and the, the mariners on the ship, although they play a minor role, as we'll see in our sermon today, the Lord is the main actor who gets things done. You'll notice that there's a lot of things being hurled in our passage, uh, the cargo, Jonah himself, but it's the Lord himself who, who initiates that as he hurls this great wind upon the sea. And as we know, wind creates waves and waves create a mighty storm as he, uh, as he sends this upon this boat that Jonah is in. And yet in verse 5, we're introduced to new characters, these mariners, these Gentiles, who were likely seasoned sailors. This wasn't their first ship or their first trip out at sea. And yet we see their response is one of fear as a result of this storm. Now, anyone who has sailed before or maybe has no sailors knows that, that storms are pretty common out at sea. And a seasoned sailor doesn't often get very afraid. And yet these men are terrified, perhaps not only because of the ferocity of this storm, it's growing more and more and more tempestuous, but perhaps also because of the sudden nature of this storm. Presumably, when they set out to sea, the weather was perfectly fine. And, and presumably, they didn't get very far because we know that they tried to row back to shore. So perhaps even land was in sight. And so the sudden nature of this storm immediately clues them into this idea that this is no ordinary storm. And so their, so their fears arise. And so what do they do when they are afraid? Well, each man called out to his God. These Gentile sailors are what we call polytheists. That is, they believe in many gods. It was very common in the ancient world for, uh, for people to worship many gods. And so they would have a, a family god that their, that their household would worship. They would have a regional god. They would have a national deity that they all paid uh, homage to. And these men, as they worship and, or as they cry out to their gods in fear, I feel like Paul's assessment of the Athenians could very well apply to them. These were very religious people. 
Anyone who deals with something, a, a, a force of nature as powerful as the sea, they need to appeal to, a, to something that is even more powerful than the sea itself. And so these men crying out to God or to their gods perceived that the gods were trying to get their attention by this storm and they were hoping to appease the right God. And so covering their base, every man cried out to each God that they worshiped, hoping that they get the right one, the one who's, in, who's uh, in charge of this storm. Well, since the storm did not die down after their prayers, they resort to more practical matters in attempts to save the ship. They begin hurling their cargo to lighten the load so that the boat doesn't sink. But meanwhile, as these men are crying out to their gods, as they're hurling their cargo, as you can just picture the scene, as they're frantically running to and fro on the deck of the ship in hopes to save themselves, we get a completely different picture of Jonah, where we read that he had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he laid down, and he was fast asleep. Now, this word, fast asleep, has been used throughout Scripture First, the first occurrence of this Hebrew word of being put in, in a deep sleep is, of course, when God created Eve out of the rib of Adam. God put him into this deep sleep. We see a related term in Genesis chapter 15 when the Lord makes his covenant with Abraham. And before he walks between the severed halves, he puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And so this word is, is not just some light slumber, Not just a quick nap, but it is one of those deep sleeps where you are basically comatose. Now, we might wonder, why? Why was Jonah in a deep sleep? How was it that he was able to sleep through the the wind and the storm and the waves as the ship reeled to and fro? Well, perhaps he was utterly exhausted. We know that he had fled from the presence of the Lord, that he probably was... uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in quite a bit of a hurry. And so perhaps he had been up 24 or 48 hours in making his way to Joppa. And perhaps he was just utterly exhausted. Other people suggest that perhaps he was depressed. Think about the, the, the ramifications of him fleeing the presence of the Lord, fleeing his land, his, his country, his family. And so perhaps he was in this deep depression and that often will cause people to go into a deep sleep. Or perhaps his sleep was divinely induced. Perhaps the Lord put him into a deep sleep. We don't know. We're not told. But one thing is sure, he is dead to the world. As the sailors are running around frantically trying to save themselves, Jonah is sawing logs in the the inner part of the ship. Well, someone probably finally comes across Jonah and realizes that he's sleeping, and he tells the captain... And the captain realizes this is no time to be asleep. Uh, not only do they need all hands on deck, but also being in the inner part of a ship is the most dangerous part if the ship's going to go down. And so the captain comes up and he says, what do you mean, O oh sleeper? Wake up, sleepyhead. It's time to get to work. And so he calls out to this mysterious passenger that they had agreed to take on to his ship And he calls him into action. Notice the words he says, arise, call out to your God. Now, ironically, these are the exact two words that the Lord used 
to commission Jonah to go to Nineveh. Arise, call out to Nineveh. And so the, the astute listener will realize the irony now as this pagan Gentile is waking up the prophet of the Lord and telling him to pray. And yet, as we'll see, Jonah is in no mood to pray, at least not yet. And so after waking up Jonah, and you just picture him coming onto the the deck of the ship, rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, all groggy, we see that, that having nothing left at their disposal to save themselves, the sailors seek to get to the bottom of why the storm was sent. They say, come, let us cast lots. Now, lots are something basically like dice or drawing straws, which were widely assumed in the ancient world to decipher the will of the gods through a process of elimination. We see this being used even in scripture. And as the proverb says, it's the Lord who controls the lots. And so through, by, by you know, rolling these uh, dice as they were, they would be able to identify who it was uh, on whose account the storm had come. And just picture this scene as they're, you know, throwing the, casting the lots and narrowing it down. No, it's not him. It's not him. You have to wonder what was going through Jonah's mind. We're not told. But as he's standing there on the deck, still groggy from his deep sleep, and they're casting lots to figure out on whose account the storm has come, he's mysteriously silent. He doesn't fess up. He's probably thinking, oh, I hope they don't find me out. And yet, we read, the lot fell on Jonah. He's singled out. They realize it's because of him. And yet, having singled him out, they pepper him with questions. Who are you? Where did you come from? What is your mission? What's your nationality? It's interesting that they don't immediately assume Jonah was the guilty party, and they give him the benefit of the doubt. They give him, they, they allow him to speak for himself, to give an, a defense. And by ter- determining Jonah's hometown, his region and nationality in their mind, they would be able to identify which gods he worshiped in the hopes that they could pray to those gods and appease them. And so Jonah replies with his nationality first. He says in verse nine, I am a Hebrew. Now, the term Hebrew is often in Scripture in the Old Testament is the term that Jews would use to identify themselves to other Gentiles. You see this Abraham being identified as a Hebrew, or Joseph in Egypt is a Hebrew. Here, Jonah identifies himself to these Gentile sailors, but then he also tells them the God he worships. He says, I fear the Lord. Now here, if you look in, uh, if you look in your Bibles in verse nine, you'll notice there when he says, I fear the Lord, the word Lord is in all capital letters, which means it's not a title, it's a name. And behind this, this word Lord is the Hebrew name Yahweh. This is the covenantal name that God gave Moses at the burning bush. And he says, he gave him the name so that the Israelites could call upon the name of Yahweh in order to be saved. He says, I fear Yahweh. Now, this word fear has to do with faith and worship, a a reverential fear, meaning that he serves and worships Yahweh. This is his confession of faith. And yet, as Jonah's standing on the deck of the ship, 
having been identified not by his own admission, but by being singled out with the lots. And even as he is on the run from the Lord, in total rebellion against him and his commands, he says, I fear the Lord. It's interesting, his confession of faith is being undermined by his very actions. You may wonder if the the men on the ship thought in the back of their minds, do you fear the Lord? Really? Then what are you doing here if, in fact, you fear Yahweh? But he goes on to give these men a, a short theology lesson. He explains who this Yahweh is. He calls him the God of heaven. Now, the pagans, as I said, believed in many gods. Each god Uh, And each god had power over their own realm. And so you had a regional god who had power in, in a certain region, whether it's the god of the dry land or the god of the sea or the god of the underworld. But even as pagans believed in many gods, they all basically assumed that there was one great god who was over all. And they called that god the god of heaven. So if you're familiar with Greek mythology, it would be Zeus who is the god of heaven. He's the great god over all the other regional gods. And yet here Jonah says Yahweh is that god of heaven. And as the god of heaven, he is the maker of the sea and the dry land. You see, he's covering his base. He's saying that Yahweh is a universal god. He's everywhere present. He's not restricted to a particular region or a particular realm. No, he's the God of heaven who has created and made all things and thus has universal dominion and power over every square inch. That's the God that Jonah professed to believe in. And yet we see the response of the sailors after they're given this short theology lesson We read in verse 10 that they were exceedingly afraid. Literally, they feared a great fear. Now, formerly, they were afraid of the storm. But now, after this theology lesson, after they know what Jonah has gotten them into, they fear not the storm, but the God of the storm. The one who summoned this mighty wind, who's sending uh, the the rain and and the waves upon them. And look at their reaction. What have you done? Learning upon learning of Yahweh's omnipresence, that he is powerful, he's present and powerful everywhere, they question Jonah's sanity in attempting to flee him, trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. What were you thinking? And why did you get us wrapped up in this whole problem? They're terrified. And yet, once again, in verse 11, they take the initiative. They say, what shall we do to you? As the waves and the storm continue to intensify, they want to know what they need to do to appease the wrath of Yahweh and to set things right. You see, these men are are beginning to show, and we're seeing from these pagan Gentiles, that they are, in fact, image bearers of God. That they know there is something more powerful than them, that they know that there's a God, that he is good, that he is powerful, and that he needs to be appeased. And so they're, they're wondering, what do we need to do? Well, Jonah's response is quite shocking. He says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. This would have meant certain death. Basically, Jonah says, kill me. Now, 
We don't know what's going through Jonah's mind when he suggests that they throw, throw him into the sea. Is he making a noble sacrifice? Is he saying, look, guys, you're right. It's on my account that this storm has come. Sacrifice me to the waves so that you can be saved. Perhaps. Or does Jonah just have a death wish? Is he just wanting to get it all over with? Now, before you think, well, there's no way Jonah would think that. In chapter 4, we actually see Jonah praying that the Lord puts him to death when his worst fears are realized. That is, when the Ninevites end up repenting and God relents from the destruction that he would bring them, he says, just kill me now. Perhaps at this point, when Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, we see that he would rather die than go on his mission to Nineveh. Well, again, we're not told. We don't know. There's a bit of ambiguity at this point, which is only resolved later in the story. But we also see that he doesn't want to bring the others down with him, even though he may rather die than go on the mission that God called him to do. He at least finally acknowledges that he's responsible in the manner, in this matter. And while Jonah is far from exhibiting any tangible signs of genuine repentance, he does at least admit guilt and he declares his own sentence. He recognizes that as a rebel, as one who is fleeing the presence of the Lord, who is outright contradicting what God had told him to do, he recognizes that he has brought upon himself the just sentence of death. And he declares his own sentence. I deserve to die. And he commissions these men to be the, execution, uh, the executioners. Well, while Jonah's motives are not entirely clear, the sailors are. They recoil at the idea of executing Jonah. And they work valiantly to avoid it. We read that they get to the oars and they row as hard as they can. They dig in to the water to try to get back to land. They don't want to put this guy to death. I don't know about you but I would be the first guy to throw him over. You're the one who brought the storm? Okay, you're gone. But no, these men valiantly and courageously try to avoid his fate, and yet all to no avail. Once again, Yahweh is the main actor. He's the one who is all-powerful, and there's no resisting his will. And so before, uh, before throwing in the towel, Before throwing in Jonah into the sea, they call out to Yahweh in verse 14. Now, it's interesting that the captain had, when he woke up Jonah and said, wake up, sleeper, call out to your God. We never read that Jonah actually did that. And so here it's up to the Gentiles to call out to the Lord. And it's a remarkable prayer. It's the only prayer of its kind in scripture where pagans call upon the name of Yahweh. And you'll notice there, it's the covenant name of God. It's not just God in general. They're not just crying out to the big man upstairs. No, they're calling upon the covenant name of Yahweh that they had just learned from Jonah. And we know from another prophet, Joel, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, will be saved. 
And so looking at the content of their prayer, it's striking that they don't pray out to the Lord initially for deliverance. They don't say, oh, Lord, save us from this storm. No, they pray that the Lord would not hold them guilty for throwing Jonah into the sea. They're more concerned about their conscience than their physical well-being. Here again, I think the Gentiles, these Gentile pagan sailors are showing the work of the law written on their hearts. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, that describes these men, by nature do what the law requires, they're loving their neighbor as themselves, they are a law to themselves. For even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That describes these men to a T as they're calling out to Yahweh, saying, Yahweh, do not hold us accountable. Do not charge us with blood guilt. Calling upon him and and in doing that, recognizing that he is the judge of all the earth. And they're asking to have a clear conscience Before him. And they recognize that he is all powerful, recognizing Yahweh's sovereignty over the whole situation when they say, uh, You have done as it pleased you. We sang in our psalm today, Psalm 135 The Lord is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Similar refrain is, is in Psalm 115 God is in heaven, he does whatever he wants. Here you have this same, very same confession of faith that God is all powerful. And since they recognize that you're the one who's brought this about, recognizing his sovereignty, they call upon him. And after praying this prayer, in verse 15, we read that they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, just as he instructed. And just as he said, the sea ceased from its raging. You have to wonder what they were thinking at that point. What a remarkable thing. As the storm is calm. And in verse 16, we read of the aftermath. Now, verse 16 should be considered as a postscript, describing the response of the sailors, but not necessarily immediately after throwing Jonah into the sea. We read that they made a sacrifice, but it's unlikely that they would do the sacrifice on the ship because they've just unloaded the ship. They don't have the means, the wherewithal, to offer a sacrifice. And so it's probably best to see verse 16 as a postscript following up, perhaps days, weeks, months later, after they arrived safely on shore. But we read first and foremost in verse 16 that they feared the Lord, Yahweh, exceedingly. Now, previously in verse 5, they feared the storm. Then they feared the God of the storm, the one who was everywhere present and powerful, in terror. But now we see their terror turns to devotion. You see, there's two types of fear in Scripture. There's the fear of terror, the fear of punishment, and wrath, but also the type of fear that is reverential devotion, the one that that speaks of faith and worship and service, the one that Jonah claimed to have, but his actions were contradicting it. That's the type of fear that's being described here. 
This is the fear of the Lord, which Psalm 111 tells us is the beginning of wisdom. It involves faith, reverence, and worship, the fear of Yahweh, as opposed to what we also find in the Old Testament, the fear of God. When when the Old Testament speaks of the fear of God, it's referring just to having a respect, a a, a morality, a, a basic sense of right and wrong. You'll notice that when Abraham in in, uh, in the book of Genesis, when he lied about Sarah being his wife, and King Abimelech came to him and said, what were you thinking? Why did you lie? He said, because I thought that the fear of God was not at all in this place. That is, he felt like they didn't have a basic sense of right and wrong, a basic morality. Well, Abraham was wrong. And these men, these sailors, definitely showed a fear of God initially wanting to do the right thing and spare, Jonah, uh, spare Jonah's fate. And yet here we see them moving on, progressing, not just from a general sense of right and wrong, a fear of God, but a fear of the Lord, Yahweh, a reverential devotion of the personal God. And in response, we read that they offered a sacrifice. And as I said, it's unlikely that they offered the sacrifice there on the ship since they wouldn't have the, the, the wherewithal, they wouldn't have animals, they wouldn't have the things to do it because they just unloaded the ship. And so presumably, after they make it safely to shore, they offer a sacrifice. And yet, this is the interesting thing, because it was widely assumed throughout the ancient Near East that you don't just offer a sacrifice willy-nilly anywhere, but you need to go to a holy site. You need to go to a place that is specifically set apart for that God so that you could offer your sacrifice there. And so if these men returned back to Joppa, if that was their port, their home port, if that was where they were from, it would have only been a one-day journey to Jerusalem. If indeed they knew that that was where Yahweh had his name be known, where his temple was set up. And so it's not out of the realm of possibility that these men made the trek, made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to have a sacrifice offered to the Lord. And so perhaps here we see a fulfillment of that prayer of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 when he prayed at the dedication of the temple and he prayed of the foreigner who would come having heard of the Lord's great name and mighty hand and outstretched arm. And in the case of these foreigners, having experienced that, perhaps it was at Jerusalem that they offered a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving unto the Lord, and they made vows. Now, vows also are a part of religious worship, whereby you call God as witness to perform the things that you promise. And what what is it that they vowed? Well, presumably that they would come and sacrifice again. As we see in Psalm 118, in the presence of the assembly of the people of God, I will pay my vows. And so here, this wasn't just a one-off sacrifice. Thanks, Yahweh. Appreciate you saving us from sea. No, but they promised that they would come again in lifelong devotion to the Lord. Well, as we consider this remarkable passage, we see first and foremost, the power and sovereignty of the Lord on display. He's the main actor, both in derailing Jonah's attempt to escape, but also in radically changing the lives of these unnamed 
Gentile sailors. Little did they know that when they, what they were getting themselves into when they accepted the fare of this strange man who made his way down to Joppa and let him on board their ship. Jonah, likewise, was in a completely different mind frame. He had no idea of what the Lord was about to do, not only in sending the storm, but also what he would do in the lives of these Gentile sailors who were his plan of escape. It's interesting that when he gets himself on that boat, he did not have these men, their physical, let alone their spiritual well-being in mind. He brought them in great danger in getting on board their ship, and yet we see the Lord save them, not just physically, but we have good reason to believe spiritually, despite Jonah's horrible witness, despite his witness. And so as we consider the failure of this stubborn and wayward prophet, it calls us to yearn for somebody who is greater than Jonah, who does care that we are perishing and is able to save us from the wrath to come. And of course, that greater than Jonah is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. In conclusion, I wanted to read to you briefly from a story we read in Mark chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. Mark chapter 4, we read of an event very similar to the one we read in Jonah. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35, we read, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Here we see our Lord Jesus Christ in a situation very similar to that of Jonah. He's asleep on a boat in the midst of a great storm. Now, undoubtedly, the sleep that Jesus was in was due to exhaustion, knowing how hard he worked to minister amongst the people. And yet it's fascinating that as the disciples wake him, they ask him that question, do you not care? Showing no faith in their Lord. And yet we see the Lord's response as he stands and he orders the wind and the waves to cease, and it happens. Here we see in this story that Jesus is greater than Jonah in that he is the faithful servant. He was not fleeing from the Lord's will. He was doing all that his father had commanded him. But we see something even more about our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is he the faithful servant, but he is the all-powerful Lord. He is Yahweh, who can command, speak, and it is done. 
And that's why we see the response of the disciples. Even though they were afraid of the storm previously, we see that they were exceedingly afraid, had great fear, not of the storm. That had been calmed. They were afraid because they were in the presence of the one who is God of God and light of light. Well, praise the Lord, praise God for the gift of his son, the faithful servant, the greater than Jonah, the one who is, who is, who does care that we are perishing and is able to save us through his perfect life and sacrificial death. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you were pleased in the fullness of time to be born of woman, to be born under the law in order to rescue us from the trouble that we had gotten ourselves into. We thank you that you uh, were not only laid down your life on account of us, but you were raised victoriously and you enable us to partake of that newness of life as we walk in the fear of you all of our days. We ask all this in your name. Amen.